Welcome. Welcome, everybody. Singer VL's 9th of February, 2018, Google Hangout. And remember, we're CPD accredited, so you can contact anyone at the office if you want to get a CPD certificate after our Hangout. There's a secret, there's a question which I will ask during the Hangout, just to make sure you don't phone up having just watched it for two seconds. The, se the next thing to do is remember to uh, watch us on YouTube, sign up on our YouTube channel, and you will get a notification every time we do a new Google Hangout. And then the last, the next thing I want to tell you, we have very big news because history in the making, because today is the first time that we will be doing a CPD Singer VL accredited Hangout, also on a podcast. So when, you're, when you are on your way home, you can either listen to Ed Sheeran, the BBC News, <laughs> or me. <laughs> And uh, if, you, if you have problems sleeping, again, the Singer VL podcast can be downloaded and listened <laughs> at your leisure. So that is the, that's the uh, of today. Now let me sell it. Let's see everyone who's here with us. Me, Neil Singer. We have, here's Richard Wolfred. We have Dale Henry. Hello, everyone. We have our man in Scotland, Graham Waddell. Afternoon. We have Anthony Ratcliffe. Afternoon. And we have Brian Batterby. Hi. Right. Right. I think I'm going to introduce the guests straight away, actually, before we talk about what's going on in the marketplace. I'll just give you a little bit of background. So this is Mr. Ratcliffe, who is famous for running syndicates through Ratcliffe's Chartered Surveyors. And I remember when I was a youngster working at Jones Lang Wootton as it was, and every time a yellow piece of paper came around the office, you knew it was a letter from Anthony Ratcliffe offering a property for sale. It was famous, wasn't it? It was famous. It was yellow. Yeah. And Anthony's going to tell us about how he syndicates properties so successfully um, when we come on to him later. He has been syndicating since 1991. He's closed, I think, 151 as at July mm -hmm. 2017. He's returned 38.5% annualized returns. And since 2012, when it's all been cash, he's been producing 28% and annualized returns. That's ungeared. So that's Anthony. And it's very interesting, I think, that we've got Brian on who's going to talk about PropLend, because PropLend is new age. So whilst Anthony may be, I'm not going to say old age. <laughs> no. <laughs> Brian's going to talk about PropLend. PropLend is an FSA authorized and regulated loan syndicating business, which who has already organized many millions of pounds worth of loans online and I think I'm going to leave the rest to Brian when he describes it later. So that's what those are our guests today. We're very lucky to have them. Let's start off if I can suggest with a brief rundown of what's been going on in the market. So Richard, over to you. Hello everybody, good afternoon. I'm just going to run through four transactions that we have been involved in in the last few weeks. The first of which is a parade of retail shops in London Road in East Grinstead, which are led to EE, Carphone Warehouse, Shoe Zone and Waterstones, all with under five years on the lease. We actually offered each one as, as an individual investment, but sold uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as, as one property to one buyer for the total combined closing price of £1.65 million, which equated to 6.4% net initial yield and was acquired by a local private investor who exchanged in several days. So that was done last week. 
The second is an industrial ground rent investment in Aberdeen on the Bridge of Don Industrial Estate, which uh, was underlet to home base on a short unexpired lease, which we quoted 5% on, £1 million, and sold to an English private investor at £1.1 million, equating to 4.5%. So very strong, very strong yield. Thirdly, we sold a leasehold multi-let industrial estate in Chelmsford in Essex on behalf of a bank for just under three million pounds at seven and a half percent net initial yield. Interestingly, on this sale, we were employed as a, as a backstop for the seller who had a buyer knowing that, that they had to perform to prevent us from exposing the sales to the market, which they did. And finally, we sold a juice and trade counter investment in Wigan in Greater Manchester. Who, uh, which, which was sorry, which was let on a new lease with five years term certain, and was sold by Click to Purchase Best Offers, with four online offers being submitted, all above the asking price of seven percent, and we achieved six and a quarter percent, one hundred and fifty thousand pounds over the asking price, uh, demonstrating the strength of the quasi-industrial trade counter market at the moment. Thank you, Richard. So there's some things that we've been. Thank you, Richard. That's some things we've been selling. We have a new feature at SingerVL, which I think, Dale, you wanted to tell everyone about. Yep, I'd be very happy to. So we have very recently announced a new client's dashboard. And what this means is that now when we are selling a property, um, a vendor will have immediate access to real-time activity reports. So they can see exactly the interest generated from our marketing so the dashboard provides a, a real-time online data set so a client can see all the analytics from, from their property's website. So this includes not only a high-level view of activity at singervlsales.com, they can see statistics on emails distributed, opened, clicked, analytics for this specific property's marketing website such as page views, new versus returning visitors, page views by device and world reach. Plus, clients can view a schedule of interest in real time, showing who and how many parties are interested in their property at that exact, exact moment in time. Um, also, if we're offering a property for sale by click to purchase, then the dashboard also gives the client access to all the transactional activity. So they can see if any parties have, for example, completed the online verification process to submit an online offer. They can see any click to purchase offers made. There's a full audit trail and all the transactional data is available. So basically selling clients no longer need to ask or wait for an update. It's available at a click. So when we're selling, they've got exact knowledge of the market reactions to their property. So this means complete marketing transparency for clients now. Thank you, Dale. I think that's really good if I can suggest. In fact, one of the reasons we did this as a business is because Sometimes when we're selling a property, a client may say, well, maybe there's not as much interest as you, know, you may hope. Well, the reality is, is that we can show them where in the world people have looked at the property, how many people have downloaded, how many people have opened emails, etc. So we've exposed it to the market very extensively. And sometimes the market is more enthusiastic about one property than another. And also it gives a real time dashboard for clients and I think the world is moving that way with transparency <clears throat> the other thing which is new which is what I just mentioned to you earlier which is the client dash the client um, as well as the client area is the podcasts so you can either download just go search on 
iTunes, find SingVL, download and join our podcast channel, or you can watch on SoundCloud directly off our website, and you'll find a page on our website, so you can see all, we'll have everything listed, and you can see what topic might interest you, and you can be educated and earn CPD, and it's all a bit of fun as well. Graham, Hello. time to learn about North of the Border. What's been going on in Scotland? It's been a slow start to the year, but this week uh, we've picked up five sales, so we're going to be very busy over the forthcoming weeks. Can't really say too much about them at the moment. Uh, a couple of flagship retail units, which will be um, really good to see how they go, um, uh, and a couple of smaller retail as well. So no, it's been it's been a slow start, relatively speaking, but uh, it's going to pick up as well. And I think as Neil knows, but we can't can't reveal just yet. We're uh, bringing somebody else on board in Scotland as well to um, to move it to the next level. So it's it's all good. Yeah, that's very good. That's that's very exciting for us actually. In fact, Graham is a real success story for us. We started working with Graham well, three years ago now. Graham, what was it? Three years. Three, three years. years ago, yeah. And. I think it's fair to say Graham's probably no, now known as the man to go to in Scotland if you want to sell investment properties. I think that's true, isn't it? I mean, we are we are probably doing more volume in Scotland than any other agent I can think of. Is that? I, I, I think, think so. Yeah, I think so. I so think we, we are, are very yeah. keen to try and build on that. And if anyone watching is interested in working with us in, say, Manchester or Leeds or Birmingham or Bristol, we would love to talk to you to try and expand our network. Okay. Now let's bring in the guests Anthony yeah we would Anthony we thought I'd give you I thought I'd give you the floor and let you explain to everyone how you got into your syndicating business and how it's come so successful without giving away too many secrets otherwise everyone want to copy you well we worried about that for the first seven years and then after that we thought you know what come and join us <laughs> yes so it's, it, we started, the, we started this thing in 1990 as an idea born out of desperation, as many good ideas are, when the market was as flat as a pancake. And we were seeing all this cheap um, investment product that our clients just didn't have the appetite to buy, either because they didn't have the confidence or they didn't have the cash. And uh, we were thinking, we've got to find a way that we can um, introduce a new source of, uh, of client base. And I thought about it, and I thought, well, you know, the, in, in, in previous years, a lot of us had been um, uh, quite interested in it. Um, sorry, my phone, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, been interested in playing, but you didn't have big enough chips to sit at the table. Uh, so we thought, well, maybe there's a way that we can break down the unit size. We can bring in the new players. We just have to come up with some sort of structure to do it. So I went off to see my lawyers, uh, and by good fortune, They'd been doing a lot of work for a guy called Dick Dusentor, who set up land lease in Australia. And as a retirement job, came to live in the UK and tried to launch a REIT here. And they were the lawyers that he used. The Treasury at that time blocked REITs because of tax leakage here. They were too worried about it. So although REITs were operating then in Australia, South Africa, America, they could, didn't get off the ground here for many years. But the, but the groundwork that these lawyers, Druces, had done for him, we were able to piggyback off it. We knew what we could and couldn't do. We went to see the FSA and said, this is what we want to do. And <coughs> their, um, initial, the initial reaction we had was, 
Well, you'll be careful here because collective investment schemes, you will come within the remit of FSA, which was the last thing we thought we could afford to do at that time. So talking to them and meeting with them, we came up with the, the structure they would accept, which skirted their requirements. Um, took us a few months to get it together and we launched in 1991, um, meeting the criteria they imposed on us to build this business by word of mouth and recommendation, which was fine because that's the way we'd built Ratcliffe's itself for the previous 20 odd years. And um, uh, limiting ourselves to 20 investors as a maximum per property, that was fine as well because I thought six, eight or 10 was enough. And then the last thing in the tale was that neither we nor any of the other advising professionals could charge any more to the syndicate structure than we would to a private client. And we thought, ouch, because a lot more work, we ought to be able to charge you a bit more fee. And then I thought to myself, well, I'm not doing any business anyway. We might just as well have a go at this. And if we put our fee structure broadly in line with the long abolished RICS scale fees, which went out in 82, nobody could be too critical that we were being unfair on the fee basis. So that's what we did. We established it with that. First deal we did, uh, we agreed to buy a shop for about 250,000 pounds, got 150 of mortgage on it and put 100 in of cash with 10 shares at 10 grand each, just using family and friends to kick it off. We took a, in all the early ones we co-invested, we took a share. Um, and it flew. And uh, when we realized that that would work so well, we might be onto something, it built from there. We then spent six or seven years trying to build it quietly so that the big guys didn't pick up the ball and run away with it. And then when we got to about six or seven years of establishment with it, I thought to myself, we actually need some competition because this subsector of the market for it to have respectability, there need to be other players in it. And fortunately now there are. I and mean, we've had some villains in along the, along the, the years, but uh, they've mostly uh, disappeared now. I wonder, and, uh, I wonder if they charge the same fees as you, because I've looked at some of these models online and the fees can be quite high. You're right, but a, a lot of the ones where the fees are excessive are actually the FSA approved guys. I mean, there's the first rival we had who I won't name, but it was a fairly well-known city merchant bank. Seven years after we'd started, um, launched a rival product. And the fee structure was rapacious. They were taking 6% up front of the investor's cash. They were taking a 25% uh, profit share on exit. They were charging an annual asset value fee of 2% on top of what the managing agent would charge to actually do the management. We saw these sort of uh, things being put out there. Um, the, 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 the strength for us, of course, was it's not difficult to be industry leading if everyone else is overcharging like that. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, yeah. We, you know, we, we set up, a, you know, we did establish a, a very strong track record. In fact, um, I think we sold 122 syndicates before we made a first loss. So it was only the 123rd syndicate we sold where we actually lost some investors' money. All yeah. the ones before that had been profitable. But of course, the 2008-9 crash did hit us badly, particularly on our leverage properties. Um, and we had 
uh, I think we had 11 loss makers out of all the ones we've done. Um, most of those were leveraged. And five were so bad that actually the investor's cash was lost entirely on those five. But overall, um, we've had, uh, I think, 7% uh, loss makers, 104, <coughs> uh, 93% 90, profitable. So, you know, we've, uh, the track record, I think, is, is quite robust, really. Can Since I, can 2012, I, yeah, sorry. Can I, I just want to ask, because yeah. a lot of people may be a bit, not, may not quite fully understand how you go about this. It's, um, I wonder for the people okay. who are watching and listening, uh, it might be useful just to explain what you mean by it or how the syndicate works. Because the thing okay, about all right. syndicates is there's always a level, I, when I've looked at these things, the question that people often ask is control, fees, exit, when's exit, mm. things like that. And I know you build up trust. Yeah. You build up trust over time, don't you? I... Yes, you do. But but uh, well, the first thing is that everyone has to, anyone interested has to register with us, and we have to put them through the usual CDD nonsense. Right? When that's done, and they're on our mailing list from time to time, they'll receive something. Um, how we make it work is we select a property that we like, we agree to buy it. Uh, our solicitors will then get a contract on it, and from that point we will then put the syndicate details out. And we are normally full within 24 to 48 hours uh, of syndicate investors um, who will um, confirm that they want to take a share. Um, we have a minimum of six investors uh, and maximum of 20. Um, and typically it's eight, 10, 12, that kind of, uh, uh, that kind of structure. Um, and the size of the share is entirely dependent on how much we paid for the property. You know, if it's a four hundred thousand pound property, then maybe the shares are fifty k. If it's a two million one, then maybe the shares are one hundred twenty five. Whatever, however it works out. You know, and occasionally uh, we we will do half shares as well when they tend to be slightly bigger numbers. Uh, the the investor profile we have is interesting. We've got a couple of people on the Sunday Times rich list. And then a whole bunch of guys that work on the refurbishments we do of our high street properties. So our carpenters, electricians, uh, plumbers, etc., invest their money with us as well. So we have a, a, an absolute range of investors. Okay, I've got a and question for you. 20, what, 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 yeah. Question for you. What happens if you decide you want to put 10, I don't know, 10 grand into a, a syndicate and then mm. there's, a, there's a call for cash because you need some money for a developed refurbishment or something. So what yeah. happens there? Is everyone obliged to uh, pay their share? And the, my question yes. is what if they, for whatever reason, they haven't got the, li the liquidity at the time to meet that obligation? Right, okay. Well, firstly, if, if we're buying a, a property to syndicate where I envisage a cash call in a couple of years time when the lease comes to an end or you know an event that will will require some money putting in we'll make that clear at the outset with the presentation so when people confirm that they will put their 50 grand in to the, take the share they also must confirm that as and when a cash call is made they will stand for that as well then having said that you might have an event two or three years down the line when somebody who thought they could put the cash in finds that they can't we've had i think two instances of that in all the years we've been doing it and in each case we've resolved it by them selling the share to another investor in the syndicate who's taken that share on and then 
uh, provided the cash call that was required there. Most awkward one we had recently was where one of the investors unfortunately died and we were making the cash call right in the middle of the probate period and we couldn't get the cash released. Mm. We actually covered that until they sorted themselves out. But, um, you know, mm. so we all wanted to find a way to get around, to get around these kinds of things. But the other thing too is that um, we, have a, we have a lot of liquidity, we have a strong liquidity with them uh, in that uh, sometimes death, divorce, some event, somebody needs some cash and they want to sell the share mid-term. That's not a problem. We've invariably got the other investors who one of, the, one of them will be very happy to double up, take the share on because it's midway through the investment strategy that we've got for it. And we can normally return the cash in 10 days. So we try to match the liquidity almost to, you know, what the stock market used to be. What's, uh, what's obviously you, direct purchase. Yeah. Have you ever thought, have you thought of linking up with one of these modern online syndication businesses? And because you, it seems to me you've got such a great track record. You're the first who, first who did it. You could expand your business enormously if you, I'm not saying don't get me wrong, it's a big business, but I'm saying if you wanted to, if you, if you decided that's what you wanted to do, you must get people knocking on your door saying, come on, Anthony, team up with us. It must happen. Yes, we do. We do. Um, the, the main point is this, that uh, the, the problem we always have is not actually clients, it's properties, right? Um, it's very, very hard to source the properties we need that have the profile that we need that can deliver the returns that we want to achieve. Um, and by being a relatively small business, uh, we have the luxury of control. And when I don't like the market, I don't play. Yeah. We were out of the market for two years, 2010 to 2012. We didn't buy a thing because I didn't like it. It was catching a falling knife. And then 2012, we put a toe back in the water and we bought something which we happened to have bought, have developed 12 years before and sold. So we knew it inside out. We bought it back. Uh, Specsavers in device have restructured the lease and, and then turned it on again. And, and from 2012, we've been back buying, but it's all been cash. We've done no leverage plays because money's impossible to get within the time scales that we need to do our deals. If you're selling something to me, you want me to sign it and exchange a contract in 10 or 15 working days. Go to the bank and tell them, can you meet that time scale? We all know that's, you know, you need six months. Yeah, we don't. It doesn't work. Yeah, we don't sell it. I have to say, as a business, we sell very, very little to people who have to finance. It's so, yeah. it's just not worth the aggravation anymore. Absolutely. It's right. a shame the yeah. world's gone that way. Okay, anyone got any question? Anybody got a question for Anthony? I've got one more, but I'm going to look. If anybody else has got anything, though, anything? I do. Okay. Hi, Hi Anthony, it's Richard. Hi. In terms of turning over your properties, is it discretional or you have uh, a specific period of time in which you hold them to do your uh, asset management initiatives and then sell them on? Or Yeah, I mean, when, when we put the deal together and we present it to the clients, we'll present the strategy, you know, and we'll say this property has got a lease expiration in three years time or a rent review or whatever, you know, and, and we envisage an ownership period of whatever it may be right and then of course events may accelerate that or may decelerate it depending on state of the market and what, what you manage to do with the property um, but we'll we give them a, an approximate time frame as to how 
we see the thing going. And we, and we rarely look to own something more than five years. I mean, we do have stuff that we've had many years, but uh, generally speaking, we're looking at a two to five year turnaround with what we do. Thank you. Thank you. And in, and in terms of um, the sectors that, that, that you buy, and obviously I know that it's very much retail focused, has that, has that changed in recent years? Have you, have you no, diversified into other sectors? No, Richard, I'm, I'm too stupid to be able to do anything else. So, you know, retail is what we trained in. I mean, I'll buy the odd office if it's a no-brainer, single-tenant government type stock. We'll pick one of those up when they, when they, in a time when offices aren't the flavour of the month, you know. Um, you know, so we, we like to buy in a contrary way. I don't do industrial because I don't understand it. And I especially don't understand the yields on industrials at the moment. Seems to me lunacy, but there we are. <laughs> Agreed. Not, not particularly having noted what the yield you got on the thing that you were talking about earlier that we sold. <laughs> Quite right. <Mad>. Yes. <laughs> anyway, there we are. All right. Um, Atty, that's great. Um, I've got some other questions for you, but let's bring in Brian. Is Brian? Hello, Brian. Hi. Thank you very much for the invite. Um, it's nice to have you. I'm going to show everybody your business first of all. Let's find your business on screen. There, there is Proplend. No, that's mine. Ah, <laughs> oh, there's Proplend. Yes, you were. There was Ad. There's. If anyone wants to look up Anthony Ratcliffe, there's Anthony's business. This is Proplend, which is which is slightly different i would suggest uh, it is i mean there's there is a lot of similarities um the main difference being um that well similarities in the fact that i i got into i sort of founded prop lend under the same sort of uh reasoning that anthony anthony did it was the frustration of um i've been raising finance for property investors and developers for about 13 years um, I'd watched from the coal face, sort of 2000, 2000, 2007, 2008, when the uh, when the world fell apart, property market fell apart, and the funding market fell apart. Um, and watched how everyone repositioned themselves. So we had a lot of uh, mezzanine funds who'd raised money, who turned themselves into stretch senior lenders and sort of moved into the residential development side. Um, there was a lot of uh, a huge amount of money, institutional money went into commercial real estate debt funds, so people like Aviva, AXA, LNG, M&G, um, but they raised sort of a billion pounds. They had to write tickets that were 50 million pound minimums. And there was a large sector of the market, which was the sub five million pound sort of commercial investment side, which used to be serviced by probably 50 odd uh, banks, building societies, foreign banks, who had literally just vacuumed from that space. And there was a, there's about sort of 40 billion, depending on whose numbers you believe, of sub five million pound commercial debt that needs to be refinanced again in the next sort of two to five years. Um, and the 60 or, or 50 or 60 odd building societies who, who used to bank the building societies who used to do it, we're now down to probably about 12 people who are actually looking at, who are actively servicing that market. And as, as you said, if someone turns up at their bank or building society, asks for a loan against an investment property, it potentially takes them six months to actually, to, to get a no or potentially get a yes. So um, I, I saw it out of a frustration um peer-to-peer -peer lending can you can you give us um can you give everyone a rundown of how it works yeah absolutely so um so we're what you call a we're fca regulated we're an alternative finance or peer-to-peer -peer lending platform so what we do is we match borrowers demand for funding with lenders demand for income so if a borrower comes to us um 
with a loan requirement. We'll look at that loan requirement, hopefully in the same or better way than any, any bank would. Um, we meet the borrower, uh, we visit the property, we conduct our own internal due diligence on the property. Uh, we instruct third parties, so we instruct uh, third party surveyors, we instruct uh, third party legals to do either valuation reports or uh, legal reports on the property. And we present, uh, we package that up and we present that to uh, our, our, our lenders via our platform. We, we price the, uh, the deal or the risk on the interest, or the, the interest rate uh, on the whole loan basis. So a lender or a borrower might be looking for a, as we said, say a 75% loan to value loan. We would price that, uh, that, that the, the interest on that. And then we turn around to our lenders and we'd split the loan in up to three loan to value based tranches. So in a very similar sort of way that gets done with, uh, with, with um, a property finance just now where you might have a senior debt lender, a junior debt, lend junior debt lender and a MES lender. So we have a tranche A, which is 50% loan to value, tranche B is 65% loan to value, tranche C is 75% loan to value. And if we price the whole loan at let's say 6.5% for the borrower, what that might mean for the lenders is tranche A you would earn 5.5%, tranche B you'd earn 7.5%, and tranche C earn 10%. Um, so what we do is we turn around to the, the lenders now, we distribute what technology allows us to do is distribute the, the opportunity for them to invest in the, in the, in the loan um, to, to a vast number of, uh, of, of investors or lenders throughout the UK. The, the minimum investment is a thousand pounds. So an investor can not only choose or pick and choose which property they want to invest into, but then they can choose which part of the capital structure they invest into the, and the returns that they re, they're, they're going to get off the back of that. It's it's fixed rate lending. Um, it's uh, generally between anything from six months to five years. Our average loan term at the moment is about 21, 22 months. Average loan to value on the property is probably about 59%. And at the moment, um, we're turning anything from sort of 7.3% 7, 7 in our tranche A up to about 11% in our tranche C. Um, can I ask you, if, if someone came, if I came to you with a property I wanted to finance, what's the timing? What's the, I've got two questions. What's the turnaround in terms of timing? And two, I'm just, if you go to a bank, they ask you for a, an arrangement fee, don't they, in order to take it then to the, invest, the investment committee, the loan committee. Yeah. Do you do the same sort of thing? Okay, so uh, in terms of timing, we want to try and get this down to a sort of a four-week turnaround. Um, we can generally do 90% of the, of the work within well within that time frame so we can we can generally make a decision within a couple of hours whether it's something that we think is worthwhile pursuing we can have an, a decision in principle out to the borrower the same day um, we can instruct valuations quite quickly and valuations are getting done quite quickly at the moment um, the legal is the legals are, are what tends to take the time and that can take anything up to sort of you know three four weeks and it's really depending on the borrower solicitor and the quality of borrowers the quality of the information borrower sister supplies and how quickly they supply that information so our target is to get it down to a sort of four week period and the second point was arrangement fees we do charge the borrower an arrangement fee and that fee gets charged um, once the loan's fully funded they then are, are due to pay out the arrangement fee and it gets deducted when we when we draw physically draw the money down to the borrower. So you're you're a bank. You, you, I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to see what's the difference to so, being a bank. You are a bank. Uh, we're so we're not a bank. And the difference being we are not. Um, so it's not prop lends money that is getting lent. 
every all the loans are split into thousand okay. loan okay. units. And when to each one of those loan units creates a loan contract, and the borrower and the individual lender's name on each one of those loan contracts is a direct contract between the borrower and the lender. So it sounds horrendous that a million pound loan would have a thousand loan contracts, but again, that's what technology can do. You can make that a very, very simple process. So the borrower can have one uh, user experience of signing a single contract. And what that does is that signs all the loan contracts in the background. So there's individual loan contracts between borrower and lender. It's not the, the lender putting the money into PropLend and PropLend giving uh, PropLend writing the loan to the borrower. Physically, the money comes through. We, we run our own client money accounts. So physically, the money comes into our client money accounts. We can then control that and move that as a loan, as an, a lender makes an investment or as a uh, as a, uh, a loan gets drawn down to the, the borrower. What point is an investor committed? So the so the um, some platforms run a sort of auction process. Ours is obviously a fixed rate. So there's a certain amount of loan available. And when they make the uh, when they make the commitment at that point to invest their money, we know they're we've already got their money sitting in our client money account, so they're committed at that point. The only reason that uh, the money that that transaction might not go through would be a if a loan didn't get fully funded, and we'd return the money to the investor. Uh, to date, that hasn't happened. And the second would be if something happened between the point the investor makes the uh, indication that he wants to lend to actually drawing down the loan, if something came out of the ongoing due diligence that would happen at that point, uh, that would stop us doing the loan. Okay, interesting. Come on. In addition, we've got, a, we've got a secondary market. So there is, uh, it's a fairly liquid secondary market. We've, we've uh, I mean, this, this morning, just to give an example, uh, we had half, half a million pound loan transaction was transacted between two of our lenders on the secondary market. So as, a, as a, any individual uh, lender hasn't had to wait longer than three days to get full liquidity for any loan part that they've owned. So it's a very liquid, uh, we've got a very liquid um, secondary market which, which investors can use. We've, we've built it for their use, we can't guarantee it, but it's there for their use. Hmm. Did someone say they had a question? Yeah, I, I did. Um, just on, you've got a million pound loan. Um, how many individuals would be behind lending into something of that amount? Uh, it it could be a thousand, um, or it could be it could be one. So about a, two months ago, we had a situation where we put a I think it's about an eight hundred thousand pound loan on the platform, and it was filled in ten minutes. And we sat back and thought, that's fantastic. We've done an amazing job. Everyone should be happy. And what ended up happening was a lot of lenders called up to say, I was in a meeting, I was on the train, I was on the car run, I was doing something I couldn't get, I couldn't get on the platform to actually make the investment. So what we ended up having to do was we very quickly that day sat there and decided, right, for the first 24 hour period that a loan goes live, we're putting a maximum cap that a single investor can invest into the loan. So it means that now the last loan we did, I think we had about 140, 150 investors made up that loan. And then after the 24 hour period, the cap gets lifted and then we can have people who can come in and um, take, take larger amounts. Interesting. Yeah, thank you. Um, I've got a question. Does the lender have to sign anything? Do they have to sign a loan agreement? So the loan agreements get signed between borrower and lender all electronically online. What we still have to do that we can't do with an electronic signature 
is uh, the security documentation. So there is a, a legal mortgage, um, there could be a debenture, there might be a personal guarantee. Those all have to get signed, wet signed by the borrower. Um, and we also have our own security trustee company. So the, because you can't obviously split security across 150 lenders. So what we do is we have a security trustee company that enters into the security documentation on behalf of any lender that holds a loan part within that loan. So, okay, so you, I send you my thousand pounds, I'm committed, but I still have to physically sign. No, so the, the point that you commit online is the lender making their physical signature. But, sorry, the, the, so that's a physical, okay, that's so I'm signing. When I, when I send you my money and I accept that I'm going into the loan. So you I, actually have to go on, you have to log on to the platform and you have to um, go through a transaction process on the platform where you agree to that you're entering into this loan contract with the borrower. And at that point, you're committing yourself to do that. But on the on the side, the, uh, we separately uh, arrange all the security documentation, and that's wet signed by just the uh, by just our security trustee. Oh, so you don't have to send out a thousand? No, 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 no. This. no, no, no. So that that's where technology is incredibly uh, efficient. So the borrower can sign a thousand loan contracts by picking them all up into one group and signing the whole lot in one go. When you say, I mean, uh, listen, I'm, I'm very into electronic signatures, as you can probably appreciate because of what we do. Absolutely, yeah. How, how, do, you, how do you sign it electronically? So it's literally just by uh, the click of a button. That's interesting. And that, because you've accepted terms, so that's, yeah, a, that's, terms. A, okay, that's a simple electronic signature. Correct, yeah. Okay, what we do is we use... In our click-to-purchase business, we use advanced electronic signatures. We abide by the EIDS regulations. And I, I think, I, I actually, I don't know if the same thing applies to the signing of a mortgage deed. Um, so a mortgage deed has to be wet signed. So they're, they're not signing the mortgage deed. They're signing a simple loan contract. Okay. Well, it's interesting because it's a t there's a topic that I was going to talk about later, which is relates to the government who are looking to change the rules in relation to digital signatures in relation to the property industry. And that has taken quite a step forward in the last week. So I'll, I'll come on to that later. But I'm, I'm always interested when people are doing things where they're signing online. Because it's not easy. It's taken me a long time to get to manage to do it and get it right. And there's a, a lot of people probably haven't done it simply because it isn't, isn't easy. What is your, what would you say your um, competition is like in the market? Uh, so we're probably, a lot of the alternative finance platforms have tended to go into the residential development or residential bridging space, primarily because it gives investors higher returns. We've gone down the more, uh, hopefully it's like the lower risk end of the end of the scale, which is sort of commercial investment property. There's a property, there's income coming in. You can see where that income is, the income's documented. Um, so on the, we probably compete with people like Aldermore and Shawbrook. On as a traditional lender, and a couple of platforms would be someone like maybe um, Assets Capital or in some cases Rate Center um, on the commercial investment side. Hmm. Very interesting. We sh we need to talk, you and me. <laughs> <laughs> we can because um, we could bring this into our online mechanism. I think. Anyway, anyone got any questions? I've got a few more. I've got a question. 
The obvious okay. question, do you, do you lend in Scotland? Uh, I, I thought that might come up. Um, we have been getting a lot of, uh, so we set it up originally so that it does, it's England and Wales only. Um, I'm Scottish, so I should be lending in, uh, in my home country. And it's something we're looking at, and it's it's really it's coming down to legals and uh, putting different legal documentation in place, which we haven't done yet, but it is on our on our roadmap. Good, yeah. Well, we've Neil, that's a whole other um, podcast to talk about uh, electronic signatures in Scotland, Neil, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yes, it's not so easy. Put it let's put it that way. Not yet for reasons yet. I won't go into. Um, Okay, that's great. Look, I've got a, anyone got any more questions? I've got a couple of things to throw to both Anthony and Brian, if no one's got any particular question. No? All right, I've got to ask, I can ask you both. Right, you love this one, Anthony. What is the impact of the new anti-money laundering regulations on your businesses? Um, fairly devastating, I suppose, um, in that uh, um, it's unworkable and it's impractical, uh, and everyone's trying to get their heads around it. And uh, even HMRC, um, in December, when I had an interesting meeting with them, admitted that they'd not been able to publish the guidelines to legislation that came into force on the 21st of June, because they were still getting too many questions and queries, and people were saying, you know, uh, challenging aspects of it. Um, you know, with your auction experience, uh, how difficult uh, it actually is to meet what they um, originally drafted in the fourth money laundering yeah. directive. Yeah, and um, yeah, uh, it, you know, it's it's just it's it's a nightmare basically, and it's unworkable. And uh, like many of these things, drafted by bureaucrats who don't actually operate in a real marketplace and understand how business really has to be conducted. And they're making our lives worse and worse and worse with this stuff. The latest is the Data Protection Act, the, the new draconian one that's just coming out, where if you get it wrong, the fine could be up to 20 million euros or 4% of your annual turnover. I mean, it's just nuts, yeah. you know. Yeah. More yeah, and I, more I, of this. Yeah. More and more has of it, this stuff, you know. Has it, has it affected you at all? Um, so obviously we, we're, um, we've got a lot of clients that we need to complete anti-money laundering on, on both the borrower and lender side. Um, we try and use uh, technology where and when we can. So we have a, a fairly um, reasonably slick process that people can go through. Um, but there are times obviously when you have to come offline and do things the sort of traditional way that we've, we've always done them. Um, I agree the, uh, that they are extremely difficult to, the, the regulators are extremely difficult to work through. but. Unfortunately, they are, uh, they're not things that are about to, to go away and they'll, I think they'll only, they'll only get worse. Um, and, and again, GDPR is, um, you know, we're going through a process at the moment of, uh, of doing our GDPR audit and then looking at what, what we do and how we do it and what we have to change in order to stay compliant um, within, the, within the regulations. And even, you know, even some of the consultants who are supposedly the experts on what GDPR is are still struggling to tell us whether we can or can't send this email out and who we can send it to. Yeah, GDPR is also uh, it's, it, it, another nightmare. It seems to me that a lot of rules are written, and you brought that in, Graham, in relation to Scottish electronic signatures. Rules are written by people who don't actually understand the impact of what these rules are going to have on their industry. And the GDPR is 
very strange in one aspect and just to touch on it very briefly as people will know i'm fascinated by the whole blockchain industry that is arising and the whole point about blockchain is that a record goes into a database which cannot be changed and is therefore reliable going forward the point about gdpr is that you have to allow people to request of you to delete their data but you can't delete data that's gone into a blockchain ledger so in fact i spoke to my law about this and they they said i'm not the only person who's raised this with them and no one knows the answer so I think the problem is there are these rules coming out and no one really understands the implications. And I have to say, some of them really aren't thought through clearly. And in fact, on a property which we sold last year in June, when just after the new anti-money laundering rules came out, we as agents have, a, have an obligation to check the buyer, the buyer's representative and the seller. But we have a greater obligation than the lawyers. And the problem we had on this particular deal is that the lawyers didn't understand the regulations as much as we had because we looked at it in such detail and we had this logjam in this deal because now it's moved the obligation on checking buyers and sellers to the agent to a higher level than it is with lawyers. So the whole thing's a bit cockeyed, in my opinion. I think everyone agrees, yeah? Here's, here's, an, inter here's an interesting one. So under the fourth anti-money laundering directive, we're required to... Um, refresh the documentation from time to time that we have on our clients. They may have been with you 30 years, but you still have to ask them to send the passport yet again because the one you've got a copy of is a couple of years old or something. So we'll do all this because we're required to do that. Then you've got uh, the um, uh, Data Protection Act coming in where we are obligated, uh, if someone requests it, to erase their data so any syndicate investor with us on whom we hold personal data, should they decide they'd prefer us to erase it, means we couldn't offer them a syndicate investment after that because we would then be in breach of the anti-money laundering regulations. I mean, you couldn't make it up. It's just <laughs> nonsense, the whole thing. <laughs> yes. Similar, yes. Similar sort of story. We had a, um, uh, so obviously when, it, when a loan gets, gets repaid, we email all our lenders to tell them you, you, the loan's been repaid and we've put the money back in, in your prop lend account and if you want to withdraw it or reinvest it, you can do so. And a client uh, sent an email saying, um, what's happened with this loan? When's it paying back? And we said, well, it paid back last week. Uh, why didn't you send me an email about it? And we said, well, because you took yourself off the email list and decided you didn't want emails anymore. So you can't, you can't keep everyone happy all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's move, let's move on, let's move on. Uh, I've got a few more topics I wanted to discuss, which I thought everyone everyone can shout and give us their views as we go along. Uh, there's a couple of news topics I wanted to mention. Right, the first one is let me share a screen with everybody. This is the first. The first one is here. The ten percent price cuts and transactions tumbling as agents prepare for tough market. This was a headline in the Estate Agents Online a few days ago, and it's according to Home Track. And they are saying that transactions volumes are down 14% on a year ago. And today's average discount on an asking price is either 4% or up to 10% in London. So it's quite interesting where the market's going. I mean, I think it has an effect on our market in the commercial sector. What does everyone think about that? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what a long retired lawyer told me. When uh, he used to, I used to work with him at the start of my uh, career. He said, "If you watch the respective markets, 
when the residential market crashes, the commercial market follows a year later. I just um, throw that into the mix. Well, I, that's actually been my experience throughout my career. However, we've seen at Singivio, I would say the converse, because as, re, as legislation has made it so difficult for private investors to hold residential property, a lot of residential yeah. buyers have moved into our marketplace. Yeah. I mean, the problem is that, yeah, you know, they're not, they're, they're, the problem is they don't actually not necessarily are familiar with, with the entities that they're buying or buying into, and maybe they should be buying into funds. But we've certainly seen a lot more private investors come into our marketplace. I don't, and, and, and Graham, in Scotland, you've had, I think most of your buyers in Scotland have been, been private, haven't they? The majority of the buyers that we've experienced in Scotland are actually from England. Um, there's a real lack. I don't know whether there's a lack of money up here or there's just people are too reserved or what the story is. But um, the last six things we've sold, five have been to English investors and one to an Irish investor. And uh, that's fine. Long may it continue. It doesn't matter to me because we've got access to these guys. Um, but I think they see... You can call it cheaper, you can call it better value. They definitely see better value in Scotland on like-for-like -like assets compared to down south. And not everybody wants to invest in Scotland, and I, I, for some reason I don't understand why, but that's, that's just them. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's better value. But certainly the housing market in Scotland seems to be uh, pretty buoyant at the moment. But it's a bit like... Uh, what what follows? I mean, once it happens in England, it will it will then follow in Scotland. But it's just a bit of a time delay on many things. If you, if there, you... was, there was an article a couple of days ago as well that I think it was the investment into the buy to let market in two thousand and seventeen was down something like ninety percent from the 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 number that had been been uh, put in in two thousand and fifteen. And again, I think that, that sort of follows your point. There are a lot of buy to let refugees that are heading across to the commercial property market that that have either are selling down their buy-to-let portfolio or aren't aren't increasing their buy-to-let portfolio when they'd like to, but are actually moving across to commercial now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Neil, no, no, was, uh, was that home track report you referred to, was that referring to London? No, it was, it was referring to, it was throughout the country, it was saying that the, the actual discounts on art, the actual discount on asking prices was the greatest in London. In fact, if you if you were to go and to read all the various reports, the London market has definitely hit a barrier. But if you talk, if you look at the markets in say Birmingham or Manchester, those markets are seeing the positive effect of people preferring to buy in those areas rather than London. I I, I think my personal view is that the worst thing that's affecting the London market is the government help to buy scheme. I think it's a complete disaster. And I think there is a bubble is going to pop on that because I, I remember going into an estate agency in Islington a couple of years ago. And I, just after the, law, the laws had changed in terms of the tax where you couldn't offset a higher rate on a residential investment. And I said to this estate agent, so how many of your buyers are investors? And he said nine out of 10. So I said, well, why would anybody buy a property anymore? Because there's no income return. And he said to me, well, they'd be buying for capital growth. And I said, yes, but if there are no investors and there's no income return, there isn't going to be any capital growth. And um, I think that that, I think the market, therefore, the result is simply supply and demand. Those investors have gone. So now 
you've got these prices, you've got flats for sale at, I don't know, half a million pounds in East London, and the government are lending you enough money so that so the first-time buyers can buy these properties. But, they but really, what they're doing is they are artificially inflating the value of those properties. And you can't, as a second purchase of the same property, get the same loan from the government. So these poor these people who've bought a property with this loan from the government to help them afford to buy a half million pound property when those people come to sell it the buyers were first when the investors aren't around and secondly a, a an owner occupier can look at that property where there's no government help on it or a new property down the road well they're going to go to the one down the road so i think people are going to get trapped in their properties i think is a disaster so that's negative, equity, negative equity will follow won't it uh, well, I just think it's almost certain. I think certain I think people will get trapped in their properties. Anyway, that's um, more good news. More cheery chat. Yeah, more good news. But I I don't think a hangout at the moment would be right unless we brought in one of my favourite topics. Let's talk about bitcoins. <laughs> now, now. Here's an interesting thing. Have I, have I showed my green? Here's the, here, there's the graph. There is the graph on Bitcoins. And you can see that not long ago, Bitcoins were touching $20,000 and they've crashed down to 8,000. Now, you knew. Now, I remember the dot com boom a few years ago when people were talking about buying shares. You'd go to a dinner party and everyone would say, oh, must buy Affinity Internet. Why? I don't know. But I'll buy them, and it's exactly the exactly the same thing. And you've got now you've got people. Well, a few weeks ago, maybe saying, oh, "I must buy bitcoins. I must buy bitcoins," because everyone else is doing it. And you knew something was going to happen, but actually, there's a real reason I believe why this crash has occurred. First, first of all, is I would say my view on bitcoins has changed dramatically. Six months ago, I would have said to you that I think the cryptocurrency is going to grow and grow and grow. What I've realized in the last few months is there is no way the governments are going to allow it and the governments control things. And whilst the idea behind cryptocurrency is that it's unregulated and there's no one actually taking control of the process, the governments are just not going to allow this to bypass them. And as a result, you've got in South Korea, there was a clampdown on cryptocurrencies, what's known as ICOs, initial coin offerings, which is, which is a way of raising money by taking money from people who own cryptocurrency. China clamped down on it. Um, I think there's been various announcements by governments in recent weeks, and that's why Bitcoin has probably crashed. Plus, the reason it's such, an such a volatile market is the majority of value, and I think it's something like 95% of the value of Bitcoins is owned by a few people who got in very early. So it isn't, it isn't um, a, a true currency. So my view's completely changed, actually. Anyone, anyone, anyone got any Bitcoins? Graham? Uh, Brian, no. Brian, you no. must have some Bitcoins. I, I do, yep. Um, <laughs> primarily because I was, I was at a conference years ago and someone was explaining it to me and they, they literally said, give me some money, give me your phone, and they put some Bitcoins on my phone. Oh, I, I still got those. Um, so I, I've have been following it. I think there's um, some very interesting uses for for Bitcoin and the underlying technology, sort of blockchain technology. Obviously, what you what you guys are doing with it, um, and there are other sort of coins out there which are actually being used uh, for for a real purpose, like for uh, facilitating foreign exchange transactions. So I think that that is very interesting. 
Um, and I, I remember reading about a month ago in the paper that someone had gone to, to buy or to get a, a mortgage for a house and the mortgage lender asked them where the, their deposit was coming from. And they said, well, I made, I made money trading Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. And the bank wouldn't accept that as a legitimate form of them putting money into the deposit of their property. So, you know, what, because, if, what because they've been trading Bitcoin? Because, because yeah, because they didn't see that as a as a legitimate way of making money. Somehow, they decided that they weren't going to allow them to use that money to be the deposit for the house. So there's some some sort of irony in there somewhere. That's a bit strange. Yeah. Okay, so I've got yeah. a question. Okay, I, they someone could David England has asked how many bitcoins have you got? I don't mind telling <laughs> you how many I've got. I've got about 50 quid's worth. Is it more than 50 quid's worth? It must be if you bought them a few years ago. You can just say... You can just say it's, it's, got lot, it's got lots of point zero zeros in it. Okay. All right. Yes, it's very... But I do think it's quite interesting. We can talk about ICOs if people want to. I'll talk about that in a moment. Right. We've got a... My friend Stephen Michelle has got a question for you, Brian, about your business. He says, what happens if a borrower defaults on the loan? Uh, so the same would be, say we go through the same process that a, um, any sort of bank would go through. So the, uh, we generally, when a loan is drawn down by a borrower, we'll take uh, between three and six months interest as an interest reserve. So if a, the borrower then pays interest monthly, and if they miss an interest payment, we're onto it very quickly. We can start following up with them. Um, if the loan goes into a period where it's, it actually goes into a full default, then we have the same rights uh, through the mortgage contract uh, or through the, uh, the legal mortgage that we can step in, take control of the property, appoint an LPA receiver and potentially sell the property in order to uh, to regain or recoup the funds to, to repay the lenders. Okay. See, interesting you should say that. I, I've heard that you mentioned earlier about some of the competing companies were doing more high-risk high risk lending to residential developers. I've heard that some of these tech businesses are now calling in receivers because some of these loans haven't turned out so well so yeah yeah there's there's a lot more can go wrong in a residential development uh transaction that can go wrong in a commercial investment transaction um and the if a residential development goes wrong halfway through it then it's a lot of management time and effort to actually go and work that out bring new contractors in make sure the warranties were passed over correctly, get new quotes for rebuilding, you know, finishing off the build work and actually getting into a state where you can, you've got an asset that you can sell. Um, our worst case scenario would be a tenant goes bust on a borrower. So what we're left with is we're left with either an empty property, which you can sell an empty property, maybe not for the same value, but you, you can still sell an empty property and, um, or you can release that property and try and sell it uh, with, a, with a new tenant in place. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose, can you, can you, Equally, if the people, can you equally offer the, in any way offer the property or extend the loans from the people who've already entered in to this syndicate? Uh, so we, so we can't. So ours, um, so we can't use the term syndicate. Um, we, they're they're individual lenders making loans to the borrower. Um, and what we have done is a, a lender, oh, sorry, a borrower has come to the end of their loan term. And they came back to us and said, look, we're, we'd really like to, um, to refinance with you again. It's been a good experience. We've gone to the bank, the banker, we know the bank's not going to uh, refinance in the time frame that we, we require. We thought we'd get a cheaper rate out, for the, out, from, out of the bank, but they actually were, were not. So can we just refinance it on your platform? So what we do is we can't extend the loan. 
because um, the way the, the structure is set up, what we do is we just have a, a whole new loan facility and we refund, so it's almost refinancing with potentially some of the same or some totally new lenders who come into that loan. And the proceeds of that new loan would then redeem the, uh, the original loan that the, the borrower has. Okay, interesting. Anthony, yeah. Anthony, looks like looks like we found you a source of funds. <laughs> well, we'll have a certain have a private we'll certainly have a private chat afterwards. <laughs> it would be quite nice to return to the to the happy days when we used to leverage things as opposed to do them for cash. Because the problem with cash is basically, you know, we probably run out of oxygen at about three three million quid of uh, an investment. Whereas when we were leveraging the days pre-crash. The biggest win we did was 26 mil, you know, so we're, uh, it's a different world that we're working in now. On the other hand, our investor profile, as they age alongside me, are more comfortable that we're not leveraging and they're getting income to live on in their, uh, in their dotage. You know? mm. So it, uh, it, it has its, uh, it has its um, positive sides as well, you know. Um, okay, so, yeah. right, so we've been online now for an hour. Thank you. And I don't know if anyone's got any particular topics they would like to cover, but we normally sign these things off after an hour. Has anybody got any, any particular topics? We can, I've got a few, but I can save them for the next hangout. Don't. Well, we had a rant. I had my little rant about the um, MLR thing, didn't I? So I've, 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 done, I've done that. You've one done very well. Know. Yes, you've done very well. We're going to edit that. We'll edit that bit out maybe for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so, so question. Yes. Out of um, out of the group of the group who are here, has have any of you heard of the innovative finance ISA? The innovative. Heard of what? Sorry. Heard of what? The the innovative finance ISA. No, yes. I haven't. Yes, I have. And I've been doing some work on it, Brian. That's why I want to chat with you afterwards. <laughs> okay. Okay. So um, there's now a sort of, although there are, everyone normally thinks there's just two ISAs, cash and stocks and shares, there's now also an ISA called an Innovative Finance ISA, which you can use uh, your, your ISA uh, subscription either for this year or, or bring uh, ISA subscriptions across from previous years and then use that money to, to lend into, uh, into qualifying uh, investments of which things like, so, so PropLend is a HMRC approved ISA manager and we, we run our own ISA, which, um, which gives us access to about 670 billion pounds of cash sitting in cash ISAs, which last year earned about 0.8% as an average return. So things like that actually help make our business uh, look a, a more mainstream, but it's also opening up a whole new uh, a whole new range of potential lenders to us, which will in turn help help commercial property owners and their ability to, to borrow money. So what you're doing is you're, 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 you're opening up the market to the private investors. Yeah, our, our minimum investment is a thousand pounds. So they can either use their cash out there, you know, hard cash out their banks, or they can use tax wrappers, which maybe they've already put money into and aren't happy with the returns they're getting within those tax wrappers. Yeah, you see, I, I mean, I take the view that the, the technology of marketing things online and then executing online is so the, the potential is so huge you can touch anybody anywhere in the world I, i'm i don't i wouldn't profess to be an expert at how you transfer money from australia to the uk in terms of regulations there must be ways around this but your marketplace for finding people who want to lend and join into your ices or direct your or, or directly 
the marketplace is actually huge. I mean, do you do? I mean, for that's where I would say there's a difference between the old-fashioned approach of Anthony, who's got a very successful business, and your business of an online marketplace because you can be anywhere. We we can we can. So what technology allows us to do is to collect data quickly and efficiently, to analyze that data quickly and efficiently, and to distribute the the end product quickly and efficiently. What's your view on blockchain, and how will it affect your business? Um, there's a lot of people I think are are looking at blockchain for peer-to-peer -peer lending, um, because it they somehow think it's going to be better. Um, I, I was slightly concerned about the speeds that blockchain can actually transact at. Um, so that would be my, my sort of what, maybe one of my concerns, but I, I think the fundamental um, underlying technology I think is fantastic. And I think there will be, there will, you know, if, if somehow we could get the land registry onto blockchain, that would be a really interesting uh, and, and a, a massive development for, uh, for property in the UK. That was not a leading question, but as you bring it up, Click to purchase, which, as you know, is something which we developed as a way of executing properties online in October last year, became the first business whereby a property was executed online by an agent and immediately recorded in the blockchain ledger. The, the government on the 23rd of January this year, they, even, they put out a press release and it said HM Land Registry moves forward with digital conveyancing. The government approves changes to the rules that will enable future digital services. There's, there's no question that the government are looking at putting the land registry into a blockchain um, register. Yeah. And that will allow contracts such as those that we produce at click to purchase to feed automatically into the land registry. I don't think it's going to happen overnight. I think it's going to be a slightly slow process because you're dealing with government bodies. But it's certainly coming. And I think that what's going to happen is that somebody will be able to identify a property, buy it online at Click to Purchase or another competing platform, even though there isn't one at the moment, and press a button, select PropLend to take a loan. Their KYC will be cleared by an API from another blockchain database. And the money will flow like that. They'll exchange contracts and they'll know straight away that there's a loan coming across. And then in time, it'll just feed as a completion into the land registry. And I think this is where the world's going. And I think it's going to happen far, far quicker than people realize. People say 10 years. It's not 10 years. This is, well, this is far, far quicker. I, I would say a year ago, no one had heard of blockchain. And now everyone's heard of blockchain. Except the bloke I had breakfast with today, who I won't mention. Okay, so that, I think, rounds it up. That's a really okay. interesting session. And I think it's really interesting to hear the difference between Anthony's business and Brian's business. I want to thank you both very much for giving up your time. What I would say to anybody watching on a Google Hangout or listening on a podcast, it would be my pleasure to introduce you to our guests if you think they, they, you can help them or they can help you. If you would like to buy properties in Scotland, of course, we have our man in Scotland, Graham, who is always available. Always available. And, and if you want to do any transactions in, the, in England, please contact me, Dale Richard, and we'd be delighted to help. So that's, I think, that, has anyone got any other final words of wisdom? Thanks for having thank us. you very much. For okay, thank you very much, Anthony. Have we, have we done the question, CPD? Oh, the CPD question. All right, the CPD question, you're quite right. My CPD question, if anyone asks, in, in order to get your certificate, you have to tell me what is the current price of 
bitcoins, which is $8,421 per bitcoin. So thank you, Anthony. Pleasure, thanks. Thank you, Brian. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Dale. Thank you. Thank you, Graham. Bye bye. <laughs> <Thank you, Richard. laughs> and for me, Neil Singer, have a lovely weekend. And remember, don't forget, if you want to sell properties, singervlsales.com. Thank you very much. Bye.